Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, sports, and maybe even entertainment, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a 22-year-old badass serial entrepreneur whose sports card and entertainment company is literally blowing up as one of the fastest growing companies in this niche out there today. But before I introduce you to Andrew Rimlin, the co-founder of Swish Breaks, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that drops career advice, insights, and inspiration into dozens of different industries from the professionals like Andrew who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my specialty coffee chugging sports fans, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And joining me on the mic today is a member of the class of 2024 at the University of Maryland, Matthew Facillo. Matt is also an intern with T4C this semester. It is the end of April 2023 right now. And because he is legitimately a sports fanatic and a journalism major, I know he's going to bring a lot of value to this interview. So it has been a minute since I have had a T4C intern join me in an interview. And Matt, I am so grateful to you for trusting me (laughs) to come join me today. Why don't you introduce our guest? Thanks, Andrea. Our guest is Andrew Rimland, the co-founder, along with his brother, Jesse, of Swish Breaks, one of the world's fastest-growing sports card and entertainment companies. Prior to launching Swish Breaks, Andrew had also founded and run two other startups, the first beginning in high school, which was geared at sneakerheads to help them buy and sell sneakers securely. The other was an event marketing and promotional group, hosting events across New York City, Ann Arbor, Miami, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., the Hamptons, and Tel Aviv, Israel. Andrew graduated in December of 2021 from the University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business, where he majored in finance and marketing. And so as a recent grad, we're sure he'll have lots of actionable advice for students like us who are interested in building a post-grad work life we'll love. Andrew, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? <laughs> Appreciate the introduction, guys. Uh, not caffeinated, but ready to go. Never drank coffee before. Never drank it before. 
wow, I don't know if I've met a 22 year old who'd never even tried it, Andrew. I know it's crazy. I feel like the one time I might've tried it would have been a complete accident. Other than that, never, uh, never indulged in any coffee of any sort. So what do you use to kind of fuel? <laughs> I know the long days that you are working at Swish Breaks, considering how fast it's growing. It's a good question. You know, I'm just fueled by energy, fueled by camaraderie, fueled by, you know, a bigger goal more than the internal day-to-day of, you know, what goes on. And you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, mindset. One of the things that I do every day is, you know, I wake up when I go to the gym, I go in the ice bath for six minutes a day. And I tell myself when I sit in that ice bath, it's training your brain to believe it, what you wanted to believe. So if you believe you're tired, if you believe you're down, if you believe, you know, I've been here for 12 hours, uh, you know, I'm miserable, you know, you're going to trick your brain into thinking that if you believe that you train your brain to kind of build that endurance level, I'll be honest with you, you know, I'll work 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days sometimes. And yeah, I truthfully don't ever really think that I'm tired. Oh my God. I love that, Andrew. I yeah. love that. So let's dive into what you and I believe your younger brother, Jesse, is that right? Younger? Than uh, he's you? actually older. Oh, he's, he's older. older. Okay. What yeah, the two older. of you are doing with Swish Breaks, which you founded, I think it was about a, a little over a year ago in January Correct. of 2022. Maybe we could start off, Jesse, with you, Jesse. I God, I thought I was going to call you Matthew. Now I'm calling no you worries. other's name. So maybe we could start off with helping our listeners better understand everything that Swish Breaks does, all the different lines of business. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, I didn't realize that playing cards, sports playing cards were still a thing. For sure. For sure. Yes, I mean, I guess I'll kick it off. I'll give a brief intro on what we do and, you know, what our lines of business are. So, you know, we are essentially a, you know, think of us as an entertainment company in the sports trading card space. And the way we generate sales is through live streaming. So figure we buy massive amounts of sealed sports card product directly from the manufacturer and distributors, all sealed. Nobody knows what's in these boxes, us included. And what we do is... We have, you know, we stream on a platform called Whatnot, and we have, I think it's 130,000 followers now across our channels. And what we do is, is we open these boxes on live streams, and we rip them open for our viewers. So it's, it's, a, it's a play on kind of chance and luck with the sports cards and what's coming out. But the business model is, you know, taking these or, or buying these cards from the, the wholesalers and manufacturer and then selling them direct to the consumer via our live streams. So nobody was doing that before Swish Breaks? So the, the answer is yes. People were doing it before us. They were being done on YouTube. They were being done on Instagram. And when my brother was actually in the initial stages, he was on Instagram at first. What happened was the platform called Whatnot was launched in 2019. as think of like the modern day QVC. Uh, so vendors can go on there, you know, stream sports cards, comics, action figures, handbags, fashion, you know, every wide array of product that could be sold. Whatnot was developed to be that live streaming platform for any niche. What ended up happening was a lot of the sports card market uh, started transferring over to Whatnot because the volume play was there. You know, when we were on Instagram, we were doing, you know, maybe 
five, 600 orders a month, probably higher ticket orders, but the volume is way less. When we shifted over to whatnot, it allowed us to start doing you know, excess of you know, 15, 16, 17,000 orders a month just due to the sheer fact of building a software engine that was able to provide the infrastructure for us to get all of those orders in, the payments processed, and actually all of the data the shipping you know, required to send that out. So the whole industry changed about a year, a year and a half ago when we started. Uh, so it's been a crazy run, but there have been others that have done it before. Got it. it. It actually reminds me when my son was a little guy, I have a 19 year old, so very close to you in age. Remember the whole unboxing craze? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, people love, you know, the opportunity of chance and, you know, the entertainment factor behind it is the main driver of us. You know, that's what, you know, I tell, you know, we have 25 people in the company. I tell everybody every day, this is a, you know, an entertainment driven business. The product that we sell is sports cards, but the other variables that add to our company versus, you know, the hundreds of other breaking companies that are out there is the entertainment factor. So if you think of our company or our channel as, you know, we'd like to give our vibe up with like the frat guys in the sports industry. It's like we do crazy stuff, you know, we'll flip the camera around and put on us like dump water on our head and, you know, crazy reactions and, uh, <laughs> you know, the whole gimmick, right? That brings, it brings the entertainment side of things into it. So Andrew, I want to ask you who or what inspired you to start Swish Breaks? And do you think, Given your background in high school, such as being the captain of the varsity basketball team, did that help you generate the idea for Swish Breaks? Yeah, for sure. So what propelled to start Swish Breaks? So my brother and I, back during COVID, you know, obviously a lot of stuff you know, relatively hit the fan. I was in nightlife prior to that while I was in school. Like that was my main source of you know, generating income to kind of help out and you know, go through school with that. But when stuff hit the fan with COVID, you know, Gary V is someone I follow a lot. He was talking a lot about this industry. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, I followed a lot of his stuff with NFT, sports cards, uh, you know, different, you know, garage sale type techniques, right? And when this industry was taking off, you know, my brother and I actually knew a few people that were breaking at the time. We were just watching and buying into their breaks as a, you know, form of entertainment during COVID while, you know, everything was else was kind of shut down. Uh, and then following that, you know, I called him one day and I was just like, you know, why don't we do this? Like, why, you know, we're buying into it. We love it. We're sports fans. You know, the industry's blowing up. Like, why don't we give it a stab? And uh, we both ended up doing that. The one caveat was I was still at school in Maryland and he was at NYU at the time. So it was kind of like, you know, how are we going to do it together versus not? So we both actually ended up starting, you know, our own Instagram pages at the time. And I would say in relation to actually getting the idea for it and, you know, where the inspo comes from and building, you know, everything plays a factor. Being the captain on a basketball team is, you know, the same analogy as, you know, being the vice president of a frat. It's the same as, you know, being the president of a club on campus. It's the ability to lead and engage with others and allow, you know, yourself to put yourself in a position to be successful when scaling something out. It doesn't come overnight. You know, it doesn't come from you know waking up one day and saying, you know, I want to be a leader. Uh, you know, since a young age, you know, I've been someone that has, like I said before, been relatively hard on myself, but always, you know, in a position to kind of motivate, engage, and, and better others around me. And I think when building anything in life, 
you know, at school, if you're at a club, you know, building a company, you know, building a team and, you know, motivating a team to do better in sports. The same analogy kind of goes across all of those different verticals. It's, you know, having that same thing with the ice bath, right? Having that mindset to train yourself and, you know, to train others around you to kind of build up, you know, a certain mindset that you want others to believe in, you know, to kind of help grow. So I think big inspiration and drive to start and build things comes from everything in life, you know, not just, you know, one certain aspect of it. How did you start building the company? Can you take us through that kind of that first play? Could you break that down for us? Yeah, this is like the craziest story. And you know, when we get older, we'll probably look back on it and you know think it's even more crazy than it might be right now. So I graduated early from Maryland in 2021, like you said, right? And you know, I kind of had that semester where I was, you know, home before I was starting a job. I was supposed to go into investment banking. And I, you know, I was at Nomura my summer preceding graduation. You know, I had an offer to go back into a different division at the bank. And you know, I was kind of up in arms. You know, I was running the hospitality group at the same time, full force. You know, I was doing a few other things. I was doing banking. Like I was kind of, you know, having my hands in like nine different pots at once. And I graduated early and had this six-month period. And I was in the breaking world very strongly before that summer, right? Like when I was when I was at school, call it spring of 2021, when I was a junior. I was very, you know, I was very into the breaking. We were doing it out of our dorm room. Me and me, and my buddy Jared Kranz, we were doing our breaking company out of our dorm room at school. And then when I left for the summer, and I was in the banking, and you know, I was kind of, you know, I was just torn. I was doing, you know, four or five different things. And what I told myself back when I graduated was, you know, I had, you know, I had an offer, you know, out of a bank, so I, you know, I had a fallback thing. I was. Basically, always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and that I didn't want to go the traditional corporate route, but I wanted to give myself something that would be able to sustain before I graduated that would make sense for me to make that decision. And what ended up happening was I graduated early. My brother was like, You got to see where the industry's at right now. Cause you know, I had like a six month break where I wasn't breaking. He's like, You got to see where it's at. You know, it's, it's been insane on whatnot. Like, we got to pick this up and take this off. So I joined up with him back again in January. Like once I graduated, you know, I came back to Jersey with him and we started just going out at six, seven nights a week, me and him, just us two, uh, streaming, shipping, marketing, everything was, was all us two. And then I ended up calling my buddy who I was doing it with up with at Maryland at the time. And I was like, dude, you got, we got to We got to get back into this. Like you got to come up, you know, you got to come to Jersey like right away. So he ended up moving into our house from Maryland. He was, you know, down in College Park on a fly within two weeks after I started breaking with, you know, with my brother and we started building this out. He came down to our house in Jersey, moved in, was also working with us. And while that was all happening, my other best friend who was living down in Miami at the time, who also dropped out of college, was an actual beast. He was, you know, doing digital marketing sales down in Miami, dropped out of school and was crushing it. I was like, dude, like there's a huge opportunity here you got to come up to Jersey and see what's going on. And it took him about a week or two because, you know, he was in a a current job. So he ended up also moving to Jersey maybe two, three weeks after Jared moved up. And then there was all four of us out of our house, living there, working there, eating there, sleeping there. All four of us, we were just going out at 24 seven. Rob never ended up moving back to Miami, stayed in our house in Jersey. We ended up building a team around us in Jersey. We had, Two people coming from Staten Island. My aunt was, you know, the backbone. She was running like the entire shipping, 
uh, department since we started it, you know, going strong. We had, you know, high school kids coming to the house, college girls home for the summer coming to the house. And there was like a whole array of 15, 16 people in and out of the house on a daily basis, all in Jersey. Uh, that ended up going on for about, I'd say six, seven months through October of 2022. And we were probably all ready to kill each other at that point. It was like, it was just super, super crazy. It was, you know, you had so much going on. Nobody had any space. We were living where we were working. You know, there were days where we legitimately like wouldn't see the sun. So it was a crazy environment. And then we ended up moving to the city in November of 22, opened our headquarters here, which has facilitated a tremendous amount of our growth. We ended up scaling back when we were in Jersey from 13, 14, 15 people you know, on a rotating basis to now full-time uh, 25 in-house. We launched two additional vendor pages from just being one switch breaks to now we have switch breaks, switch hits, and switch bats. Uh, so we cover MLB, NFL, and NBA now, whereas we used to just do either one or two sports. So the growth has been all in you know, just learning, building, growing, surrounding yourselves with people that want the same type of you know, mindset and driven goal that you know, we all kind of preach to each other. Uh, so that's how we started. That's the you know, founding story. We were you know, up in arms for a good amount of time. A lot of hecticness, but uh, we wouldn't trade it for the world. Love it. And, you know, your uh, LinkedIn page talks about the fact that Swish Breaks has been establishing partnerships with large players in the sports and entertainment industries. Could you give us an example or two, Andrew, of some of the partnerships that you've been able to forge? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, any content creator, which is what we you know, think of ourselves deep down, right? Like we sell product, but at the end of the day, like I was saying, it is entertainment and content creation. So one of the you know, biggest things for us is like establishing those right partnerships and, you know, having vertically integrated partners with our company that you know, also add value to our clients at the end of the day. A good example of that would be there's a marketplace that you know, we've been in talks with called PWCC. They are the leader in basically call it online auction sales. So it's different than what we do because we sell wax or breaks. Once you get your card, that you can post your card up for sale, similar to like eBay, uh, where you can post your card on their marketplace and you know there's an auction that runs. Uh, you know, for me and you know talking with Nate from PWCC, we you know we're delving out a strategy on how we can add that end value to our clients and you know facilitate a good partnership amongst us. And um, you know what we're actually doing and it's it's in launch right now is we are basically partnering up with PWCC. So it's kind of switch breaks powered by PWCC. And what they're doing is any person that comes to us and you know receives cards from a breaker wants to flip around and grade them and sell them. They can do that directly through us via PWCC. You know, we're promoting it through, I mean, now back two months ago, we we're 17,000 packages a month. Now we're up, you know, over 20,000 a month. Uh, all 20,000 a month, they're going to be getting these, you know, individual custom flyers where they have a direct link to go and actually go and sell their cards. So it's instant liquidity for the buyer, you know, which in turn keeps the velocity of money moving quicker, which at the end of the day can drive more revenue to us, you know, more revenue to the overall market, bring more liquidity to buyers. So it's a good, uh, partnership and one that we're super excited about. Would you take us into a typical day for you, Andrew? You mentioned that you're working some sick hours. 
what time do you usually start and and kind of like what time do you end and then what are you doing in between i i just want to let our listeners know that it's been really hard to get on your calendar like <laughs> you are you are solidly booked yeah uh it is it is a crazy lifestyle i, I don't want to you know sugarcoat it the life of a you know an entrepreneur in building is not you know, it's not as, as glamorous and roses as it might look all the time when you look under the surface. You know, with that being said, typical day changes all the time. Like I'm just sitting here, I got like nine calls, right? It all depends on, you know, certain things going on in the market. You know, I'll wake up, I'll check our, you know, we're on a private platform where wholesalers and distributors, it's like a second, think of like the stock market for sports, you know, wax, like sealed boxes. So you know, I'll wake up, check that. Yeah, I usually go to the gym first thing in the morning. So I'll go to the gym usually... Seven seven thirty. I like to take about at least you know two hours in the gym. I'll get to the office, depending on the day, right? You know, not too early. Like depending on the day, we'll you know get in like ten ten thirty. Plethora of things coming up, right? It's you know running an operation of a lot of people. There's meetings with partners. You know, like we spoke about. There's you know break meetings that we have daily with all the streamers. There's you know handling inventory, you know managing inventory, selling different products. You know, keeping focus on the market, you know, working with our marketing team to put out content. You get torn in about 50 different directions probably every hour. The biggest learning curve and the biggest thing for me has been figuring out how to prioritize the best way. You know, I've been getting better at over time and you get better at that with experience. But the day-to-day switches every single day. There's some days where I'll be in the office till 4 a.m. You know, I have to pick up a night stream, right? And then you got to be back in at 10. There's days where you're, you know, you wait, you know, you wake up, you know, 10 o'clock and you're like, Oh my God, I'm super late now. I have, you know, two meetings at the office. And it's like, you got to run in and get in there. You know, you have different partners coming by to see the office. You have distributors coming by. So it's a big balancing act of figuring out good time management and balance, which is one of the, I would say most critical skills in scaling is figuring out the best way to balance everything. Day-to-day changes all the time. Yeah. It's, that's most of it. And so, as we mentioned in the introduction, I'm a junior at the journalism school here at Maryland, and I'm really interested in in going into sports after I graduate, but I'm still uncertain, I guess you could say, what that's going to be like. So, do you have any advice for students like myself where you might not know what that looks like down the road after you graduate? For sure. So there's one thing I tell, and I, you know, I mentor a lot of students that are going through my frat right now. I mentor one of the clubs that I was the head of the fund at the Tamid Club at Maryland. And I'll say the same thing that I say all the time. And it, it's, it's super parallel. The only way you will ever know what you want to do is by trying out, you know, 50 different things. Nobody, and even myself right now, right? Like, you know, I can't say and pinpoint like, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do. You know, hospitality is exactly what I want to do. What I do know is that I've had a broad range of experiences in multiple different facets that you can lend to your strong suits or, or your weak suits that you want to you know, make better. And you kind of triple down on that. So, you know, I knew that I was good at business. I knew that I was good at, you know, talking with people, being communicative. I have a love for sports. So I fell into this category. I didn't know that I loved banking or hated banking until I had a banking internship. And then I realized like, this isn't for me. You know, I didn't know or not know that I loved you know busboying at a restaurant until I did it. 
you know, I didn't know that I loved nightlife or hospitality or, you know, opening bars and restaurants until I did it. You never really truly know, in my opinion, what you, what you can or what you're capable of doing without trying a good broad range of things. And I'll say, and I say to all my buddies too, one of the most important experiences I've had in my entire life. And I've, you know, had, you know, I can name so many different things that I've been through, but one of the most important roles and time periods in my life that most people might not understand is when I was busting tables at 13, like that single handedly, those two years when I would go to school, you know, I was, I was, it was like, almost. I think it was like illegal to work. I would go to school and you know, my parents thought I was crazy. I'd go to school on a weekday in high school. I was a freshman and sophomore in high school. And I would go immediately at four o'clock to the restaurant and bus from four to 11. And I learned more working in a team at that time than any type of you know, experience I think could have given me at that time other than that. You were working with you know, clients, like people going to the restaurant. You were working with people in a team, like you know, your other bus boys, waiters. Uh, and mind you, you know, we were at like a high profile Italian restaurant in the area. So it was pretty high pressure, right? You were able to be depended on. You had to pick up responsibility. You had to work in high pressure. I, you know, people yelling at you all the time. So you know, one of the things that I always say is start working early and put yourself in a position to gain experience where you might think you want to. Did the busboying translate me into the hospitality world at first? It might have, right? Like I don't have a concrete answer, but it lent a hand to it. Did hospitality and you know making deals and, and doing business with nightclub owners in you know, seven different cities when I was 20 and 21 years old? Did that lead to you know giving me a better opportunity to make better deals now for Swish? 100 percent Um, so it all kind of plays hand in hand. You know, get involved as much as you can, do things that you might not normally think you would like because you never know if you will like it or not until you try it. So definitely, you know, I encourage anybody listening, get involved with everything you possibly can. Nothing is bad. You you might hate it, but give it a shot. Um, and that's that's definitely the piece of advice that I'd say for for anybody looking to get into anything. Even with all of the experimenting that you did with the different industries, like you talked about, did you have any anxiety or fears about finding a post grad job? And if so, how did you manage that? For sure. So you know, I was super gung ho on going into banking. I thought like my entire college career. I was like, I'm going into investment banking. I'm going into one of the big banks and I'm just going to... Yeah, it's just where I want to start. And I don't know if that was truly because I wanted to do that or I was programmed by external factors into thinking like that was what was best for me. So the answer to your question is, did I have anxiety about finding a job? Um, and I think for a time period, it was yes. Uh, when I was... You know, junior and I graduated early, so I really, you know, I might not be the best candidate for people that do the four year, but when I was a junior, like I was kind of graduating that year, I had, you know, the summer internship at Namara stacked up the preceding November. And the banking world is different than a lot of other industries, but they do recruiting cycles, you know, almost 18 months in advance. So a lot of my buddies that, you know, were in banking, like they were kind of locked up in positions in May, April, June of 21. And I didn't end up locking something down until November. So I was actually pretty late on the spectrum there. And for those few months there, I was kind of like, yeah, I was, I was pressed. Like I was going for it. You know, I was networking with legitimately hundreds of people in the banking world. I was using, you know, connections from every job that I've had previously. And it's just tough because 
in the banking world coming from Maryland, a lot of the roles I was looking for is, you know, oftentimes taken up by Ivy students. It's taken up by people that have been at PE funds and hedge funds when they were in college and certain people that might have relationships that I just didn't have. So it was a grind and it was a grind to get your foot in the door. So the anxiety was, was there for a period of time, for sure. The number one thing that you know, kept me going and stuck out on it was the fact that I knew that if you, keep, you kept going and you kept putting yourself in the position to be successful, someone was going to recognize that and pick up on it. Uh, you know, and luckily, it happened. And it happened by a relatively crazy story due to time. I mean, if you want me to go through it, I could go through it. It might take a few minutes, but it is a crazy story how I got there. Um, if you want me to go through it, I could. So I don't know how, many how you got where? To Nomura, like actually into the internship. Oh, sure. How did you get the internship? So I worked at Delos, uh, a health and product wellness company in the real estate world. When I was a freshman or going into freshman year of college, actually through my dad, he knew someone at the company and you know, I went in there for two interviews. And he said like, you know, you're not a shoe until you get this internship, but go in there and try to impress them. You know, you'll be the youngest one in the company by three years, but try it. I'll keep that part brief. You know, I had two interviews in the city. I, I don't even think I owned the tie at the time. I was like up in shambles. I was a high school kid. And I walk into this like corporate building. I'm like, Holy, like this is, this is serious. Right. So, you know, I was prepping for this. You know, I got in there and through there, you know, I ended up working there that summer. I actually got an extension on my internship to continue remote with the business development team at the company, just doing like small research for them and little things just to keep in touch and keep going with them. It's something that I wanted to do. You know, to set myself up if I wanted to go back next summer, you know, of any sort. So I started in product development on their home wellness intelligence app. And then I moved over to biz dev, which is where I knew I wanted to be. Same thing. Try out a bunch of stuff, right? Like they were like, we're not going to put you in biz dev at first. I was like, no problem. I'll start on product. I had no experience in product. You know, I was just trying it, right? I was getting in there. I was learning everything I possibly could on my own in the office with mentors, just doing whatever I could to make myself an asset. After the summer, they were like, all right, like you do really well. We're going to move you to biz dev remote. You know, we love working together. So I was, you know, working there remote at the same time. I also knew I wanted to go into banking long term, right? So I'm always thinking about that. At the same time, I, you know, I was in crypto and in the crypto space and you know, I was at a blockchain conference and I had met a guy by the name of John Boyce who was working in the private markets division at Nomura. And Mr. Boyce, what he does is he would raise or help facilitate raises for private companies you know, at a high scale. And while I was working at Dallas, you know, I was super absorbed in everything that was going on with their business. Uh, it was a pretty big business. There. I think they were raising their Series C at the time. They were already valued at over a billion dollars. And as I was working in that you know, biz dev kind of market research role, I was working with all the business you know, people in the company. And while that was happening with the, you know, like I said, getting into different things, crypto, John Boyce, you know, I, I met with him. You know, I, I met him at this conference. We ended up meeting, you know, two to three times later. He was at an investment bank. I'm like, this guy can be, you know, my ticket into this bank. I ended up working to connect Delos with Nomura, Japanese investment bank, and Delos was looking to get into the Asia markets. So we ended up having diligence, like one of the head of global markets at Nomura, uh, with the CEO, COO at Delos, myself, the head of BizDev. And there was dialogues going on for Nomura to invest into Dallas at the time in that round. You know, just doing that alone was something that 
put my foot through the door with Nomura, it allowed me to you know, develop really strong relationships with you know, the founders at Delos who were former partners at Goldman. Uh, and it just kind of propelled me into that banking role. And I would say to this day, without that experience, I don't know if I would have gotten into banking. So it was really three years or two years before I had those interviews at Nomura. You know, I went through the Super Day and kind of got my foot through the door and had that internal push from someone at the company before actually even getting you know, that type of role. So it started way back. You know, I always knew something was going to come up, but just a small caveat story where you never know what is going to come up and why, but you just, like I said, try everything, put yourself in a position to be successful. I love that story. And I think one of the questions that's, that's on the minds of students is how relevant what they study in the classroom is in the working world. And so far, I've only heard you talk about busing, internships, other jobs that you've had, being vice president at your fraternity, Tau Epsilon Pi, where you were the fun team lead. Oh, no, no, no. And you were the fun team lead and consulting team member of the Tomid National Entrepreneurship how much did the classroom side of your education help you once you graduated? I would legitimately call it 80-20, uh, like the 80-20 rule. I think 80% of everything I attribute to knowledge growth and, and personal growth was outside of the classroom. I think the hard skills that you learn in the classroom and the uh, call it will to succeed in the classroom is the same thing outside of it. I think as far as the, the tangible skill set that I learned through classes, especially in the finance world, that has allowed me to have a base where I'm comfortable being in the position I'm in. I don't attribute most of the overall success to what I learned in the classroom. The knowledge that you learn in classes will position you to be successful in certain roles, right? Like if you're a lawyer, you need to know law. If you're an accountant or banker, you need to know finance. If you're you know, a doctor, you need to know about different aspects of the human body. In business and for entrepreneurs, you are going to extract a lot more out of real life situations and things that you learn outside of you know, a test or a classroom or what the teacher is telling you about you know, certain you know, stuff that happened in, in business for in the past. And I think that, like I said, 80% I would attribute to everything that was done outside of, of going to class. At least if I, if I wasn't going to bash the whole schooling system, I'd put it at like 99, but it's because I, I do think school is important. You know, I'll keep it, keep it 80, 20. You catch the point. It's like you know, everything that you do, everything that you set yourself up for is going to happen not by you taking a test. It's going to happen by you doing things you know, that you don't have to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense from my, just the, my own personal professional experience. I never studied any of the industries that I worked in. I've worked in like six, but it does help you maybe become a better writer, better thinker. It also helps you network. For sure. I mean, critical thinking is a big part of it, too. That's, that's a good point. I think teaching your brain to think in certain ways, you obviously need some type of 
challenging status to that. I think as far as though, as far as getting yourself into the door in certain situations, as far as positioning yourself to be successful in certain environments, it's all soft skills. It's all outside. It's all what you're willing to do to get the job done, uh, which is what I always say all the time too. A few months after you graduated, you founded the Ace Hospitality Group. You bootstrapped event marketing and personal group events in U.S. cities and Tel Aviv, Israel. How did you begin to get that concept off the ground? Sure. I definitely get that all the time from friends too. Actually, I started it while I was in school. It's funny because I started a nightlife group when I was 20, which turns heads because they're like nightlife and 20. And the answer is yes. And I don't know professional or not, whatever the case might be, but I was throwing events ever since I was a freshman in college. I wasn't doing it on my own at the time. I was going out, you know, in the city with friends and it was just something we did. And, you know, I ended up looping up with one of the guys that was running the events just because, you know, we were going out. I was like, this seems like a really interesting way to make money while you're in school. And it was really one of the highest grossing ways to make money for your time because I had such a wide network of, of people that I knew just, you know, had a lot of friends from home, had a lot of friends from school, had a lot of friends, you know, I was on you know, different programs and everything like that. So I just knew a ton of people, you know, throughout college days. And I was just like, how can you monetize your network, you know, while at school? And other than selling them a product, it was like doing something everybody liked to do. So I just became the man when everyone wanted to go out, they kind of just like, you know, I, I was the one that was kind of facilitating that position. And my freshman year of school, it was Thanksgiving Eve, which is like a big night for people where I'm you know, from and big people in big 10 colleges like to go out on Thanksgiving Eve in the city. So Thanksgiving Eve in the city, I was connected with one of these guys who was running like a big event. He was older. I think he was 26 at the time. Uh, he's like, hey, like, you know, do you want to help us market and promote this event? I was like, sure. You know, it sounds cool. I can make money. You know, I'm going to go out to the club. It's going to be fun, right? I ended up for that event. I got the link in my hands. I still remember the day. I think it was like, I think it was like October 16th, and it sticks in my head to this day. They made me a portal on October 16th. By October 18th, I already sold out 70% of the club. It was a thousand person venue. And personally, by myself, I think I did like 500 tickets. And I was like, holy crap. Like, this is legit. And ever since that first event, I knew that this was a really fun, easy, and strategic way to actually make money while I was in school. And I think I ended up and you know, I'll put the number out there. I think I ended up making on this first event, I was like 15 grand. And like at the time, like 15 grand for me was a number that I couldn't even imagine bringing in, let alone on a single night. I was 20, I was nine, I was even younger. I might've been like 19 at that time. And I looked myself in the mirror, I think after the event happened, I was like, holy crap, like that just happened. And I remember at the time, nothing felt better to me. Money, like the money, like money was great, right? But nothing felt better than me than watching three, four, 500 people that I was friends with or had, you know, secondary connections with all having fun on, on a similar night. I was like, this is really cool. So I stuck with it when that summer came along. We were going out to the city again. I was running events again in the summer with a few other people, you know, that were in the industry and I wasn't doing it on my own. And then I did a spring break trip. Uh, down in Miami in 2021, as you saw in COVID. And that's where we really took off. Uh, I joined up with the guys from this company called Plug University, who I still work with today. And they're actually the ones that are opening a bar with me in the city, which is set to launch in like the next two months. But 
Uh, I started looping up with them. We planned a whole trip down to Miami. We threw, I think, 30 events down in Miami in the month of April of 2021 and March of 2021. You know, we grossed over 300,000 in sales, took out over 75,000 people. And then I was like, all right, like this is like, this is legit. So after that semester, spring semester of 21, that's when I founded East while I was still in school. Uh, and then I just started doing everything on my own. I started making the relationship with different club and, and venue owners. I started going out to different cities. I started, you know, networking with people that, you know, might have been at New Miami, for example, and keeping, you know, the promotional stuff going on down there. And it was all about building out that team of people because it came to a point where it wasn't about how many people I knew. It was about how many collaborators I can bring into our, our network of, you know, and our brand to start pushing it out. Because if I send the party around to a hundred people, that's great. But what's really great is if the hundred people that I send that party around send it to three people each. Now you're like over four thousand by the math, and like check that math. But you're over four grand because there, there's multiple connections to it. So it's all about building the team and and starting Ace. It was all about getting scrappy, figuring out who knew who to get to this city to get to this city. Yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do that without having you know certain internship experience, business experience, deal experience. You know, learning how to navigate and negotiate with club owners that are 40, 50 years old. So, you know, it was all learning on the fly, but those experiences were so strong in helping sculpt anything that I've done to date for sure. Uh, and in starting Ace and you know, even doing stuff in Israel when I was out there for Birthright, uh, all same thing, networking game, building game, negotiation game, all a different game of life and business where, like I've been saying the whole conversation, you really don't know what's going to come up. You just got to have the right mindset and be positioned to succeed when something does. Well, that leads into my next question. As a really young guy, how did you get these nightclub owners to trust you and agree to do business with you? So the short answer is selling. Like I had to, there have been so many times where like I would be in DC, I legit, I was in school, right? I would take the train to New York on a dime, like four hour train ride, take the train to New York. And I just meet face to face with these guys. I'm like, look, I'm young. And I would show them, right? Like, this is you know, what we've done. You know, we did this down in Miami. Yeah, you know, I did this in Jersey. You know, I'd love to work with your venue. And a lot of the times it was a money game. They'd be like, all right, if you can guarantee me 20000 for the night, you know, I'll give you a shot. So that would be me kind of assessing the risk of, right, if I can, if I have to put up 20 grand to make this happen, thankfully, just making money for a while, you know, I was able to do it. I was like, if I could put up 20 grand and the risk reward on this night might be 50, it's worth a shot. If I had to put up 50 and I think I'm you know, going to gross 40, 50 and I'm teetering the win, like we might lose. Right. So it was all about structuring that right deal, all about, you know, pitching yourself, you know, pitching the idea that you had for something to these guys, because most of the time they don't get hit with people like me. Most of the times it's, you know, industry tycoons that are, you know, like I said, 35, 40 years old that have been doing it, you know, for 10, 20 years. And it's like, to get this kid in here who started something this year, like should we really let him take over our club for the night or on a weekly party? So it was a lot of proving at first, but coupled out with marketing, coupled out with building a brand, you know, actually establishing these relationships. You know, once you get the first two, three, four under your belt, now you're kind of like, all right, like now I got something to show for it. So the first event we ever did was actually in Jersey. And I booked out, and this is another thing you got to sell people on. I booked out a DJ named Julian Zetko who did the song like Jackie Chan. I don't know if you guys know that song. Oh yeah, I do actually. Yeah. You know that song? Okay. So we booked out Zetko and then a local talent 
that you have to kind of show like what type of group is booking this event, right? Like these big DJs, they don't want to just come DJ, you know, like any small party. So I was end up, you know, I was on the manager, I was on the phone with the manager of Zeko for, you know, back and forth for three weeks. And he was about to not take the party. Thankfully it was COVID and not a lot of states or clubs were open. So there's one venue in Jersey that was pretty close to my hometown that I knew of that I used to like go to bar mitzvahs at. I was like, I'm open to it. And that was the first one. And once I did that, that was, that was a whole accumulation of everything. That was getting DJs in place that was, you know, structuring the deal that was, you know, getting bars in place, getting people there, setting up the venue, you know, structuring everything from A to Z, getting all the promoters and collaborators in on the event, you know, getting people from Rutgers, Monmouth, and, you know, all different towns from where I was from, putting all of that together and seeing me go through and be successful and then being able to showcase that was it almost did the selling for me from there on out. And then after that, we kind of just took off and ran with it and started expanding into different cities. And the model, once you get it down, it's kind of rinse and repeat. So it's like, you know, once you, once you prove yourself in something, you go at it again, you go at it again and you learn and you get better. Uh, and I wasn't great the first time, right? Like, could I have cut a better deal with, with the event pure in Jersey? Probably. Could I have done certain things differently to make it go smoother? Probably. But that's all stuff you pick up on the fly. Have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you manage it? Yeah, I mean, the toughest thing is one of the biggest things that I tell myself today and every day. It's like, you will never be perfect at everything. You will never be perfect really in anything. And I tell everybody that I work with every day the same thing. You will never get to the level you want to be at something if you have the mindset of always wanting more. So confidence for me you know, has never been an issue. You know, confidence is built by staying true to yourself. Like I firmly believe that confidence is not, I'm going to wake up one day and have more self-confidence. I'm going to next week, I'm just going to come into a situation. I'm going to be confident. That's not what's going to make you confident. What's going to make you confident is succeeding or failing and learning from it and then getting better at it. Confidence doesn't come from you know, just being egotistical or thinking you're great. Confidence will come though. And you know, I say this every day, like, you know, I'm, I'm self-confident because I'm able to trust myself. You know, the people around me are able to trust me. You won't ever be perfect. You will never feel, or like in my shoes, right? Like I'm always very hard on myself. Like I said, like I never feel like I'm as good as I can be at something. I always want to be better. Because you know, I want to be better for myself and the people around me. You know, if there's 25 people in this company, 90% of them that are older than me, and everybody has to trust me, I need to trust myself just as much as they do to make the right decisions. So it's a big game of, of really beating the bell on yourself and making sure that you can trust yourself and put yourself in a position to succeed. And if you don't succeed, you fail and you learn from it. And that's the only way to do it. There's no other way to do it. And no, nothing's bad about that. I, I love that answer, Andrew. And it shows so much wisdom and maturity that people twice your age don't have. Like just to be gentle on yourself. Like give yourself some grace, right? You're learning. and. Yeah. And I'd love to segue into our final questions here. 
These are questions I try to ask all T4C guests, and it actually has to do with failure. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a time in your professional life, going back to when you were a busboy or maybe yesterday, when you failed or face planted, and how you persevered, and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. For sure. Um, I'm trying to think here. There's a full candid, full transparency. There is so many times where you fail on a day to day. There are so many times where you fail week to week, month to month, year to year. Nothing, like I said in the beginning, is, is all fun and roses, right? It's ups, there's downs. Honestly, there's, there's probably more downs than there's ups you know, with certain things. If I can pinpoint one, I'm trying to think recently. Dude, I'll talk about the business for a second here, right? So one of the biggest things we manage is, is inventory, right? We're holding seven figures of inventory at a time, right? So when the market moves, you need to position yourself. And, and our whole business model is based on velocity. So if we get you know, a package through the door on a Monday, if that's not out by Friday and it's not sold by Friday, it has a shot to move on us, which is something that is not good for the business because market movement is, is good and sometimes it can play in your favor, but it's not our business model, right? There are traders that wholesale sports card product and buy and sell and flip. That's not us. We buy and we get it out the door. So one of the things recently that we were going through was we were picking up you know, a lot more on the NFL side, we were transferring one of our nighttime streams over to football. Uh, so it was a little bit of a learning curve in figuring out the right product balance, you know, on the NBA side and the NFL side. And what ended up happening was, you know, I, I you know, do most of the decision-making along with my brother, who we both work hand in hand on keeping that inventory strong and concrete. And we ended up going way too overboard on a certain product. Uh, I think we were probably you know, a hundred grand into this product, maybe a little more. And what ended up happening was we weren't moving it at the rate at which I thought we were going to do. And we ended up, the product ended up going down like 20, 30%. And now we were sitting on this value of inventory, you know, just on this one product alone, you know, almost down 35, 40 grand in like a week. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, damn, like this is bad, right? Like you kind of hit yourself on the head. You're like, all right, like this is tough. Like, you know, how can we... You know, how can we bounce from this? How can we make up for it? And like, it's going to happen, right? Like we know it's going to happen, but what can we do short term to mitigate this, you know, loss and then long term, how can we, you know, learn from it and provide a better solution? So what we ended up doing was, you know, obviously it's a learning game and I ended up myself, I told you every day is different, right? I ended up myself. We had about 15 cases of this product called Immaculate. We had it way too high and the breakers don't obviously like that because if you have the product higher in the market, and you know a lot of our breakers, you know, structure and their pay is on commission. Like they might not do so well on the streams uh, because the product's too high. So I ended up, I was like myself, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna just take this night. I'm gonna do this myself. I ended up getting on the stream and I moved like five cases of it. And everybody was like, oh, I can't touch it. It's too high. It's no good. I'm like, all right, like I'm just gonna do it, right? Like we'll bite the bullet. Like we'll, we'll rip the bandaid off. You know, I'm gonna just do it myself. And I usually don't stream at night just due to everything else going on. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna do it for like a few nights straight. So I ended up getting on the stream. I moved it all myself. And what we realized out of that, like what was originally like what we thought was like a $35,000, $40,000 loss in a week, it actually ended up being one of our highest performing products in the month so far. And we have not bought any other product now in the quantity that we've been buying of Immaculate. Uh, and it just kind of showed us like, what was a failure? Like we wrote this off as a loss. Like, you know, like it was a loss, right? Like we were like, all right, we're down on it. Like it's over. 
what I ended up doing there is I just got scrapping. Like, let me just try this. Let me just see what we can do. And like at the first night, it didn't go that well. I was like, like shit, like we're, we're, you know, screwed here. Like I ended up losing like a few grand on the stream. I was like, all right, like this is tough. I'm like beating myself over the head. Like, how could I, you know, let this happen? You know, all the breakers don't want to touch it. They're watching me, one of the, the stronger streamers in the company, not able to do well on it. And then all of a sudden did it again for another night. Not so great. Then I did it again for a third night. Not so great. And I'm like, all right, like, let me just keep moving this thing. And then the fourth night came up, a few people came in and it just started turning around. And we actually shifted the entire sports card market on this product. It was at around a thousand dollars a box when we were first originally buying it. It ended up dropping to around seven hundred dollars a box. Uh, we were ripping it at a thousand. The product was at seven hundred for about two to three weeks. Once we started ripping these high quantities of it, we actually drove the market all the way back up to almost where we had it at, like nine hundred. And we still have some left over. So it just goes to show, like. If you fail and you try to figure out different ways to get out of certain situations and just get scrappy, you could figure it out. You know, you can figure anything out. Oh, that what a great takeaway. But that hit hard. I'll be honest. That, that definitely hit hard. So, um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So the next question, I think you gave us like a preview of what this, what this example is that I'm looking for. It's whether you've ever experienced what some people call serendipity, good luck, what I call magic in your career journey. It can be black magic, like something good that comes out of like a COVID situation, which obviously had a lot of bad in it, or it could be fairy dust magic. But in any case, Andrew, it's as a result of that meeting, whether it's with a a John Boyce <laughs> that you right. made at a conference or it's an experience that you have. And that as a result of that, your career takes an unexpected turn that is magical. 1000%. Uh, and it happens all the time. And it kind of is parallel to what I was saying in regards to you never know what's going to come up. You just need to position yourself for it. So in terms of luck, you know, and good luck and, and serendipity, I, I a thousand percent believe everything that you do in life has a, a factor of luck built into it. What I also do know is you need to set yourself up to capitalize on that. So like if I just went through my internship and thought product development sucked and I didn't like it, I was like, all right, like this was a good experience, but I'm just whatever. I would have never met John and I would have never been able to connect him with Delos. So you have to position yourself for that. Was it very lucky, you know, that we met and that we hit it off and that we connected and that I was lucky enough, you know, through my dad to get into that company? And was I lucky enough to, to build a good relationship with people on the business team while I was there for the summer? 100%. But again, you have to put yourself in that situation. Was I lucky enough growing up to, to be living in, you know, Jersey and have great parents that, you know, were able to kind of put me in the right situations and you know, I attribute a lot of my success to them. Was I lucky to have that and to put me in a position to do everything today? You know, it starts in, in high school. Was I lucky enough to eat out you know, at an Italian restaurant with my family to get me a, you know, a busboying job? 100%. Was I lucky enough you know, when I was going to school to, you know, to be on a, a team tour and build that network of people that made me successful in nightlife? 100%. So... Every situation I think that I've encountered in life has had an inherent 
value of luck attributed to it. But it's all about making yourself successful with that. And I think a lot of people believe, you know, they might have bad luck, they might have good luck. And I think that the biggest thing there is luck is going to come. Just make yourself ready for it when it does. Be open to it. 100%. So final T4C question, Andrew. If you could go back to Maryland and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? Good question. Had this mindset from such a young age on trying so many different things. I think one of the critiques of myself and something that might slightly contradict what I've said, and it's all about finding that balance and to answer the question, what would I go back and do? I would have potentially in certain situations tried to not spread yourself so thin because that can lead to you not giving everything a full shot. And I have a tendency and it's always a work in progress and you're never going to be perfect. I have a tendency to start trying to do everything, right? Like, you know, I want to try this and try this and try this and try this without realizing that like eight other things are going on, which can, you know, decrease performance on, on certain things that might actually be a, an aggregate negative as opposed to a positive. So just, you know, I would be more mindful of a lot of different things going on. And that's, you know, that's how I am today, right? I'm mindful of, you know, different balancing things you can take on. You know, can I take on this club and this relationship and this frat and this business and this schoolwork versus, you know, should I drop one thing off, you know, for the time being and maybe pick it up when I'm better suited to. Uh, so it's a big game of you know balance and figuring out like, how can you, how can you attribute your time the best to certain situations and, and being mindful of that something I'd probably go back on and, and maybe drop off on one or two things that might have actually decreased overall performance at the time. Such amazing advice. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and with Matt. You are such a remarkable guy. It has been such a pleasure to get to share your story with the T4C community. Thank you so, so much. Thank you guys. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and uh, love what you know you are doing and, and stories and the wisdom that you share with kids our age. And we appreciate it. And if anybody needs help on any front, feel free to, uh, to reach out. Where can they reach you? You can hit me at, at Andrew at Swish Breaks. I'll, I'll shoot you the uh, I'll shoot you the handle. And uh, if anybody has any questions or wants to bounce advice, you know, young up and coming entrepreneurs, feel free to to reach me. You know, happy to uh, you know help pave the way and help guide uh, certain entrepreneurs in any type of things that come up. Because I'll tell you, a lot of the stuff that I've learned has come from people and mentors older than me. So happy to uh, pass that down wherever I could. So sweet of you. And thank you guys. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure, Matt. Great to meet you. And uh, thank you guys for, uh, yeah, for facilitating this. You as well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.